Welcome to the Wealth Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 9, Episode 3. This is a very special Hanukkah week, and I'm doing a um, rebroadcast of my interview with Faith Kramer. If you listen to the podcast, you know that earlier this week we talked to her and also Beth Lee together, and it was just a wonderful um, time to talk to both of them. Um, they're just wonderful speakers, and I had such a great, great fun time talking to both of them. I just would love to have them on the podcast every month if I could. I mean, they're just they're just wonderful guests, and it made me so happy to be able to do this with them. Uh, so I really wanted to rebroadcast my episode with Faith so you could listen to her talk about her um, career and her book, 52 Shabbats, which is a wonderful cookbook, and it's something you should look at. If you do cook Shabbat meals every week, it's a wonderful cookbook. If you don't, it's still a great cookbook, um, really worth looking at. She's the real deal with recipe writing, and um, she really has um, some great, flavorful, just well-done recipes. Um, check her out. She also has a um, really great website um, that we're going to be putting links to um, in the bio, so check that out. We'll also have a link to her book in the bio, and you can also buy it at All Better Bookstores. Without further ado, here's my interview with Faith Kramer. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian, and today I'm honored to have on my show the wonderful blogger and author, Faith Kramer, who has written a new book, 52 Shabbats, and a blog called Blog Appetit. Faith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, Faith, for our readers who aren't familiar with your um, blog, Blog Appetit, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, I've always been interested in food. I'm the granddaughter of a woman who was a terrible cook. Um, her, we used to say her brisket only had flavor when she burnt the onions. And I'm the daughter, I'm the daughter of a woman who was a fearless cook. Not surprisingly, she didn't really cook much Jewish food, but, um, she just would dive into international cookbooks and she would grow vegetables and grow herbs and, um, and she just would try anything. And you know, now I look back and I think some of her recipes I thought was so daring at the time. You know, for today's, we we're exposed to so much more in terms of worldwide global ingredients and techniques and, and flavors. They're pretty tame by today's standards, but for who she was and where she was, she was very fearless. And she just, she didn't really teach me cooking, but she, taught me to just dive into it and 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 enjoy in, enjoy the story that you ended up creating with it and I've always had that approach to cooking and I always I, I come from a background in marketing public relations and journalism although I didn't write professionally about food till much later in life oh and when my um, youngest was about 14 I realized my days of hands-on parenting were coming to an end that yeah they'd need me to pick them up late at night or something but I wouldn't be doing carpools or what have you and I suddenly had a little bit more time in my schedule and I started a food blog and that was blog appetite and the url for it is actually uh, clickblogappetite.com right. and it, it was one of the I mean when I started it it was there was a handful of food bloggers living in the Northern California Bay Area. And we all knew each other. We had picnics. It was a very small group. And it wasn't necessary even to have a picture with your food or even a formal recipe. Nobody had ads or anything like that. And, you know, so the blog grew almost like a, my own personal food column or recipe column. And then it gradually became more of my exploration of food history, food um, food culture, food customs, food traditions, ingredients from around the world. And, um, and I segued into from international food to more Jewish foods as I got the opportunity to write for the J, which is the Northern California's Jewish newspaper. And I write for them for both online and in print. I, I have a column with original recipes every other week. And I've been doing this for over a dozen years. And it's, and as I got to do that more and more, I kind of moved away from blogging into working for the, the, this as a freelance, but I felt part of the team for Jay. And I have my columns online there. 
And if you want to find those, you go to jweekly.com and then put in the word Faith Kramer and um, select my author archive. And you could see all my columns going back um, 12 years. And this was an incredible laboratory for me. It really allowed me to explore Jewish holiday foods, Jewish traditions, ingredients that have some connection to, to, to Jewish foodways around the world. And I really put my international food writing sensibilities towards Jewish food, even though I was raised with mostly Eastern European Ashkenaz Jewish food, I began to appreciate all these other foodways around the world. And I started to look at some of the, when you have to write about Hanukkah for the 12th time, you know, you, know, right. you, you, you start looking for other things to write about. So I started going deeper and deeper. Why is this food eaten at this holiday? Why, how is this ingredient related to Judaism? And I ended up coming up with some, what I feel are very modern recipes with vibrant, big flavors, using these ingredients, techniques, referring to the customs that or traditions that are associated with them. And yes, it's Jewish food, but it's not necessarily Jewish food that someone's grandma used to make. These are modern recipes. And the book also has some what I call fundamentals that my readers have been asking for over the years. And um, so my Friday night challah, chicken soup with matzo balls, um, real deal chopped liver, almost homemade hummus. So some examples of those kind of fundamental recipes. But usually I give things, I wouldn't say a twist because it's not like I take something that exists and just put a little spin on it. I, I, I like to rethink how I want to use these ingredients. For example, falafel, um, I don't make into balls or patties and fry it. I, I put it as a base for a pizza. I make a pizza crust with it and serve it with feta and fresh herbs. And I mm. drizzle it with uh, pomegranate molasses or tahini sauce. Or, that sounds um, delicious. Amba, which is this, <laughs> or amba, which is this amazing fermented um, Israeli Iraqi mango sauce and then you just, just take the ingredient amba i don't actually give an ingredient uh, a recipe for amba um but it's something you can't purchase in a middle eastern or kosher market or online um so amba for example was developed by the iraqi or baghdadi jews that settled in india and they adapted the local pickled vegetable, pickled vegetable sauces, the achars, the pickles, or the chutneys, like into this fermented mango sauce called amba. Then they went back to Israel when they migrated back from India to Israel, they brought the sauce and it has become identified as an Israeli ingredient. And it's it's a favorite in the little stands that make the falafel stands, it's drizzled on that, in the sabich sandwich stands, which is a, a fried eggplant sandwich it's much more than that, but a fried eggplant sandwich, it's a standard on air. So here you have this ingredient that was adapted by Jews that moved from the Near East to the Southeast Asia, India. And then they adapted a local ingredient to fit their needs. Then they took this ingredient with them when they had another um, migration, this time to Israel. And then it became adopted in a whole other way than it may have been used originally. And, uh, and I think that's the story of a lot of foods in Jewish cuisine. And I, I like to think that this food is more, has more appeal than just for holiday nights or even just Shabbat nights. It's just good, interesting recipes with vibrant flavors. And I, I think it's suitable for any occasion. But because I've labeled these Jewish recipes, they, they fit within the Jewish dietary laws. So they're accept acceptable to anybody who might follow those as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that like the one thing I would tell anybody that wants to look at this cookbook from reading it is that, I mean, I think this could be used by anybody. I, I think definitely within the, the strictures of like definitely looking for cooking for Shabbats, uh, I think that would that would be great. But it's a great cookbook and all the recipes in here are accessible to anybody. I think anybody would love the stuff. The, um, the craftsmanship you put into it was just magnificent. And all the relative, all, I mean, all the uh, recipes are really amazing. Um, really 
really well done. I was really impressed by it. Now you um, <laughs> taught yourself cooking on a hot plate in school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, now remember, I grew up with a mother who was fearless in cooking. I knew not, I knew, well, I knew how to burn onions and I knew how to, watching my mother, I just knew how to be fearless. And when I, I went to school to become a journalist, I went to school at New York and NYU in Manhattan and I lived in Greenwich Village. So living wow. in Greenwich Village meant I did have, at that point in time, it was a very Italian neighborhood on one side and a very Jewish Eastern European neighborhood on the other side. So I had access to all kinds of wonderful ingredients. I just needed some way to figure out how to use them. And there was an article in the New York Times Sunday Magazine for some sauteed cream sauce mushroom recipe that I decided I couldn't live without. And I, I, I had a, uh, I remember going to uh, the, the market there and showing the recipe to the produce man. And he kind of laughed and he helped me pick out the mushrooms. And then I took it back to my dorm room where the hot plate was illegal. And it was a two burner hot plate. You could see the coil, they were, they were the spring coils in a ceramic, um, I mean, very old school. And you could see it all heat up. It was definitely a fire danger. And it had two settings on and off. I'm trying to make a white sauce cream sauce and saute these mushrooms and all that. And my only choice was to have the pot on or the pot off. So I remember staying there and like taking it off and putting it back on and taking it off because I had no temperature. And I, I just remember the it coming out wonderful and feeling the magic, the magic of starting from, from nothing, from an idea, in this case, a New York Times recipe, um, and, and coming up with this dish that was just so satisfying and the act of shopping for it, the act of, of uh, planning and cooking and then being able to share it with others was just transformative in my life. And I think ever since then, um, uh, cooking has been my passion. Now, um, your, rest, your website, Blog Appetit, how many years ago did you start that? Um, I have to do some math here. Um, 10... 16 years ago well, and I, I and I want to be really honest with your listeners it, it's really not kept up there's lots of historic information there you'll see and it, and it really shows my growth as a food writer and as a blogger you know it was started before Facebook and, and all those avenues to share things about your life so you will see some pictures of my cat um one with a white stripe at Halloween where he's quote unquote dressed as a skunk you know um he's a black cat you know you'll just see family photos you'll hear stories about my uh my youngest son and how he was going to be a pastry chef and then he was how he's going to be an architect and just as he grew up um so it's very very it's very very personal um but the jweekly.com archive for faith kramer has really more of my current recipes and I'm in the process of launching a new website, faithkramer.com, that will take up where clickblogappetite.com left off. Nice. And, and it will have a link back to all that historic stuff because that's part of what made me me. Right. But um, I'm looking forward to having um, features that explore cookbooks I'm, I'm liking, influences I have, recipes that I want to share that I don't want to wait, you know, that just you know, photos of things I've eaten. I'm just looking forward to connecting with readers there. So it launches later this month, faithcramer.com. And, um, and at first it's, it's just going to be, have information about the book, but by early next year, it should be a full, a full on launch, a useful website with lots of recipes and things to help people um, be as fearless a cook as my mother was and, and enjoy the stories behind the cooking like I do. Now, um, I want to circle back to the cookbook, 52 Shabbats. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, most people call it 52 Shabbats, but really that's, that's an, that's bad. That's actually, a, I did, I did something wrong here. It's a Hebrew word. Shabbat is a Hebrew word and the plural for the Hebrew word would be Shabbat but I felt this is a book aimed at helping people celebrate this holiday that comes every week with intention and thought. And that 
it's not necessarily people that already have a Shabbat habit. And I wanted it to be as accessible as possible. So I thought the English Shabbats gave off that vibe much better than the Hebrew Shabbat. And there's a difference in pronunciation. If you come from an, a traditional Eastern European background, you would say Shabbos. Right. If you come from a modern Hebrew or a Sephardic background, you would say Shabbat. I think in America, unless you're very deep from that other background, you just say Shabbat. Now, um, was it just um, an extension? Of, did it come out of the website or did you have another impetus for creating the cookbook? I think it came out of it came out of my uh, every two weeks a deadline for the J. The J was my laboratory here. And I met some, talked to and met some amazing people about, and I started starting viewing, you know, I took my international food sensibility and applied it to what I was doing there. But that just kept forcing me to find new ways to look at things. And I got feedback from my editors and the staff at the J, and I got a lot of feedback from my readers. And it just helped me start shaping that. Uh, you know, and it was always, like, I remember one, one woman, um, gave me this left-handed compliment. And she said, oh, your recipes are always so different. <laughs> I said, yes, thank you. Because that's what I'm trying to do. Throughout history, <clears throat> Jewish food has been an adaptation. Local foods have been adapted to meet Jewish dietary or re other religious needs um, as, as communities like the um, Iraqi Jews move from place to place, they adapted what they, um, to um, their foods to fit in and other foods to fit in that way. It's always been this give and take. Hala, probably the food next to matzah that people think most of as a Jewish food. Well, this braided egg bread was, was a local German specialty without the eggs, without the sugar, um, but with the braid and that local Jews adopted. And, and now it's the symbol of Jewish food, so much so that my publisher and designer insisted there had to be a piece of hollow somewhere poking out on the cover of my book. <laughs> I, I want to talk about that a bit because I think one of the things that would surprise a lot of people is that it's a very international cookbook and there's a lot of different flavors and a lot of different things in that. And you also had a unique style, I think, for this cookbook specifically, which I thought was wonderful, is that you made it very usable by people who have different dietary restrictions. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, um, I tried to make it user-friendly and, and to me, user-friendly meant that you understood what you were doing. So that, you know, explaining the ingredients, explaining the techniques, explaining the background. For example, you know, why, why, are, Jews, why, why are Jews so interested in eating chicken? You know, and there's a little right. essay on that. Um, but in terms of, Whenever I could, I liked, I was vegan myself for a few years and had to veganize for health reasons. And I had to veganize a lot of recipes. And so it just left me an appreciation of, um, there's, um, there's a North African fish dish um, in there um, called harami. And I, and I also give a tofu version because sometimes I don't feel like the fish, I want the tofu. And I might as well make that version available to other people you know, people don't eat as much meat. People um, are having dinners with people that don't necessarily share their way of eating. And I just like to have, welcome everybody to the Shabbat table or any table and make them feel as welcome. If in my home, if someone's coming and they have a food aversion, a food allergy, a food restriction, whatever you want to call it, I will do my darndest to accommodate everybody and not feel beholden or upset because um, invite, this is more than just providing food. When you invite someone to dinner and someone comes to your table, there's a bond, there's an experience it, it, that transcends just being a cook. Uh, you know, and to me, it's also about being a host and welcoming people. So I tried to put that in the book where I could. There would have been more, but the book would have been 500 pages <laughs> and my editor maybe cut a lot out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I yeah. And actually, touching on what you just were saying just now, um, what, what can you tell us about what Shabbat means to you and what are some of the memories you've had growing up 
of some really wonderful special Shabbat celebrations? Well, Shabbat was something I kind of took for granted. It was something we did Friday night if we were at grandma's. And you know, she, I could still see her with her head bowed and her, her hands, <laughs> hands covering her eyes and, and kind of muttering the blessing for the candles and then you know, sitting down to a meal. And I make fun of her cooking, but there was something she did really well. She knew she made a good chicken soup and matzo balls. She, um, come to think of it, she probably bought the matzo balls because I know she, her local butcher made a bunch of stuff and sold it, her local kosher butcher. And I know she got a lot of things from the butcher. You know, people have these memories of their grandma making kreplak. Not me, my grandma bought it from the butcher. Um, <laughs> kreplak has a little wonton ravioli soup dumplings. And um, so she probably, she might even bought the matzo balls there. I don't know. But everything was presented with love. She did a really good stuffed cabbage and mm. that, and that lives on. And, and she also made a meatloaf. And she, my mother actually taught her how to make meatloaf with an egg in the middle, which is a, a common Jewish thing, and a hard-boiled egg in the middle. And I took those concepts and I made a, a an egg-stuffed meatloaf that's wrapped in cabbage because when my kids were growing up, I didn't have time to make a lot of finicky stuffed cabbage, little, you know, roll them all up, next one, roll it all up, next one. So I, I started wrapping a meatloaf in cabbage and gave it some of the same feel. Um, my other... My paternal grandmother died before I was born. I'm named after her. But my grandfather married a, a Hungarian-Italian Jewish woman when I was very young. And I think that gave me my first appreciation that not all Jews were like my family. And um, I still remember people saying, how could your grandma be Italian and Jewish? You know? and, um, and it just kind of opened my eyes so that there's other ways of being Jews in the world. And then when I was grown up already, I discovered different cookbooks that I started to travel the Jewish world and through cookbooks and I discovered other ways of being Jewish and how they were the same and how they were different. And that same, same, but different perspective has fascinated me ever since. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, I really liked the production quality of the cookbook. I thought it really had a beautiful look and design to it. Now, you worked with um, the photographer, Clara Rice, on the book. How did the two of you develop the look for 52 Shabbats? Um, well, there's a lot of people that went into the look of the book. And I was very, very, uh, I had a wonderful publisher, the Collective Book Studio, Angela Engel, who really believed in this book and really went out of her way to make it the, the best it could be. And... Um, I was really concerned. I didn't really want to have a lot of compromise. I had a vision for the book, but she took what I wanted and made it even better. We had a designer, Andrea Kelly, who attended the photo shoots and um, helped coordinate the look of the photos. We had a food stylist, BB Black Caminito, um, who actually styled the photos. And then, you know, I worked very closely with Clara. I mean, I sent, I sent her and the food stylist, the recipes in advance, we discussed what would work and what didn't work, but th there's no, and of course I was there for the shoot. So there's no substitute for being there on the shoot because um, the um, somehow or other, the hollow got thinly sliced for a photo. And I started screaming, no, 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 because it should be you know, torn. I mean, it, I don't know, maybe 70% of Jews tear it and 30% slice. I mean, this whole big thing, but it wouldn't be thin little slices like that anyway. So luckily she hadn't cut all the hala up yet. So we, we turned the hala on it. So the uncut side was in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, when you initially pitched it to the publishers, um, did you, what was some of the reactions you got and what was some of the ideas? Did you, were you able to kind of pitch your vision and get what you wanted or did they, did people try and like direct you to do something differently? How did it work out for you as, as, as a writer? I I, don't, I only really worked with um, Angela Collective Book Studio, so I don't have the experience of, of sending it out everywhere and getting rejections. Um, and I actually pitched a very different book. I pitched a book about global ingredients that's more based on what the track trajectory of my blog had been, um, um, Cooking Global, Eating Local. Um, no, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Uh, let me repeat it. Um, I originally pitched a book based on uh, on the original concept of my blog, which was eating local, cooking global. 
And she really liked the idea. And I happened to mention, I said, oh, and I have this other idea for um, a 52 Shabbats cookbook. It always was called 52 Shabbats. The subtitle came later, but there's always 52 Shabbats in mind. And you know, she went away and she came back and she called me and said, you know, I liked the first idea, but I really think there's a place in the market right now for the 52 Shabbats. How about we do that? And it was originally envisioned to be a smaller book, maybe even paperback, less pages, less recipes, less background. Um, but as I started writing it, it evolved into what you have now. So it, it, it kept evolving and I could not have, and, and, and as, as it changed, um, the publisher went along with it. I had a fabulous developmental editor, Amy Treadwell, um, and the, the, between the three of us, it just got shaped into this book. And then Andrea did the great design and we have the f- food styling and photos that we talked about already. And it, it, it's just, I'm so proud of this book. I feel like it's my opus. <laughs> well, I, you know, until I read your book, I didn't know too much about what, what a Shabbat was. I think I'd heard the term and I'd heard people refer to it, but I didn't really know what it was. For people that are not familiar, what marks a Shabbat, what it makes it? Well, in the, the short version is that Friday night after sundown is the beginning of the Jewish holy day of Shabbat um, or Shabbos, um, depending on how you present, pronounce it. And, and it's usually marked, you know, and people celebrate in different ways, but a Shabbat happens. It's the holiday that happens every week, whether you celebrate it or not. And for many Jews, it's really a milestone of the week. It's right. a time for a family dinner or getting together with your friends and family. And there's certain, there's different levels of observance. And if you already have a Shabbat practice, uh, 52 Shabbats is just a great cookbook to use. And maybe you'll get something out of the essays on the background and the, of the communities and the ingredients and, and things like that. But if you don't have a Shabbat practice and you want to start having a Shabbat practice, and you could do some, to be honest, some Fridays, my husband and I sit down together, we look at each other, we say, good, you know, good Shabbos, good Shabbat, um, you know, or Shabbat Shalom or something like that. But we still acknowledge that it's there. You know, other other times, you know, we say all the prayers or we light all the candles or we go to synagogue and then there's people that have different layers of, of observance. You know, the most strictest traditional observance um, is that there's no work. Um, you don't have any electronics. A lot of people are starting to investigate the concept of using Shabbat as a time to get away from screens and, te- and technology. And Tiffany Shalane wrote a wonderful book about that called 24-6. And she's going to be interviewing me on um, at December 11th at Book Passage in Cordoba Madera. So I'm really interested to have this discussion about Shabbat from the food side as well as from the technology side with her right. at Book Passage. Um, what else can I say about Shabbat? Um, you know, I, I I think that it just is a centering point for me and my family, and. I've celebrated in different ways over the years. Um, I was very, very touched. I was in London. Um, we were, we were. My first granddaughter, first grandchild, a granddaughter, was born in January, and we were in London for three and a half months during COVID, which meant we didn't really do much or go anywhere. But we were just there for family reasons anyway. And that's where I finished the book. And on Friday night, we would go over to my son and daughter-in-law's house, and she would have candles ready and I would bring a challah and we would do a little Shabbat there. And I think that's a lot of what motivates this book is I see so many families are interfaith or multicultural or international in some way, or have different levels of observance, or you're like me and you didn't grow up with, I got bar mitzvah at age 43. My Jewish education came later in life. Um, You know, you didn't grow up with a strong Jewish practice. And Shabbat's for all of you, whatever your level of observance. It happens whether you observe it or not. So you might as well make note of it, even if it's a takeout pizza and, and, and share it with, with, you can have a wonderful single Shabbat or share it with the people you love and care for.
This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Well, I mean, it seems like just from a cultural perspective in America, that it would be really wonderful if everybody, you know, did something like this, because I think most families don't really eat together much anymore. Everybody's schedules are all over the map and everybody's got the cell phones and stuff at the table. So this sounds like a wonderful chance for families to kind of reset. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily, I'm not the most observant in terms of religious traditions and I have to say that some Fridays we just don't get we just don't make it happen as a formal event and other Fridays we do and people who are come over for dinner the day they feel the specialness of the day and it's, it's just it's just a wonderful thing and I think interest in Shabbat is increasing um during COVID, there was a hashtag on Twitter, tweet your Shabbat, where people were, were putting all their amazing Shabbat dinners on. And when I was nice. writing the proposal for the book, I went and looked at that. And it's the height of the COVID, so the, the hashtag was being used a lot more then than it is now. But maybe 60 people would post their dinner menus for a Shabbat. And yeah, there were briskets and roast chickens. And, and, but then there's also people making Thai food or having um, cheese platters, or just all kinds of different things. And that really made me feel validated with what I'm doing, because yes, I, I do have roast chicken recipes in my book. One is stuffed with lemon and fresh herbs. The other is, um, it's got uh, like a shawarma seasoning on it, you know? Um, so I do have roast chicken recipes in my book. I do have brisket recipes in my book, but it's got it's made with pomegranate molasses or with Ethiopian spice mix. Um, I do give my version of my mother's classic pot roast. I do do that. And but, you know, I just don't think that I just think the Jewish food for centuries and generations and millennia was about adaptation and, ex and experimentation and renewal of the of the of of what we ate. And then about the mid the mid 50s or earlier. It became, as it became the food of our grandparents, it became solidified in, uh, in our consciousness. And it became, you know, matzo ball soup and brisket and roast chicken if you were Ashkenazi. And if you were Sephardic or Mizraki, which means Middle Eastern origin, it might have been something different. But there wasn't that sense of adaptation and experimentation. Um, my favorite matzo ball soup right now is in the book, and it's a matzo ball soup with Mexican flavorings and hominy or pozole. And, um, and like people look at it now, you could do that with matzo ball soup? Yes, you can. Or I'll put matzo ball soup in my borscht. And it's like, people go, whoa, whoa how could you do this? Or I'll, I'll um, you know, it's just, there's just a lot of different ways that you, you can enjoy your food, honor, you know, honor its, its roots, and um, which are not, you know, they're, I'm calling them Jewish roots, but they also come from the different economic and geographical realities of the world where these people lived. Now, you've taken cooking classes all over the world. Did this impact um, your recipes in the cookbook? Um, yeah. Um, I like to take cooking classes from people who are from those cultures or have really studied those cultures. Um, for example, I took, well, this was in Northern California, but I took an Ethiopian cooking class and I learned that uh, the technique for making the stew and how they fry the, the red onions or shallots dry without the oil. And I started me, I did a little experiment. And when you start the onions in oil versus starting them dry in the pan, they have very different flavors and they cook very differently. And what makes a dish unique can be, you know, I just don't want to westernize an ingredient. I want to adapt an ingredient to some vision I have, but I want to be, I want to honor the ingredient. So I would say that the cooking lessons in Turkey 
um, really had, uh, I've taken several, they've really had a big impact on me in understanding how to play with eggplant. And that directly, those classes directly impacted me creating the eggplant overflowing with lamb recipe in the book. Um, um, I'm trying to think of other ones that had such, such direct, direct impacts. I really enjoyed the paella class I took in Valencia, Spain, and um, uh, you know that had some impact on, on my paella technique. But I make an untraditional paella in a, a skillet rather than a paella pan because I figure most people don't really have a paella pan um, around the house. Um, I have a few, but most people don't. Um, but it was really struck me that when I was in that class, um, they use water and people are arguing with the teachers. Oh, you should be using stock. It tastes much better with stock. And I'm saying, guys, we're here to learn how the people do it here and how it evolved here. So how you do it at home, you know, you're not the expert. And that was a real eye opener to me that um, not to try to impose my values on how other uh, on other food food ways. Um, I think the most fun class I took was in Japan. We took a sushi making class and it was very, very low cost. And basically um, it, it, it really just made the one, kind, one or two kinds of sushi, but they let you eat as much as you want. So I think the class was the equivalent of $20 and I must have eaten $50 worth of sushi. Nice. Now you've collaborated with other writers and have been included in other publications. Can you tell our audience about some of the writers you've worked with? Well, um, mostly I've been, you know, developing my own original recipes, but I did do a number of entries for an encyclopedia of business food. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's a, it was a business, I'm, I'm sorry. I, give me a second. I don't remember That's the okay. exact name of the book. So um, I say the, um, I did submit some recipes to Molly O'Neill for her One Big Table book, and she did use she did use one of my recipes. And I have done a few things for uh, um, either like I gave a food tour to a food writer for a local magazine, a magazine about how you could shop international markets and use the ingredients to make other things. For example, we went to Asian markets, and I picked up all the ingredients. And I made a, um, I remember I made a, uh, um, I ended up with a salmon dish with a cilantro pesto. And I don't really mm. remember all the details, but I just showed you how you could shop in international markets. Um, most of my writing is, is, has been recipe writing and I've done a recipe for um, the British uh, magazine, Olive on um, the San Francisco Chipino. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, and, and then I contributed a number of articles to a encyclopedia of food about food from a business perspective on a number of topics. And I remember being really upset that the deli topic was already taken and, because I really wanted to research the history of delis. But I did do a lot on, on diners, um, diet foods, pickles, Tabasco sauce. There were about 13 different topics I did. Who are some of the food writers that you read and who are some of your favorites? Well, I have to start with uh, um, the two women who really shaped how I look at Jewish food writing. And that would be Joan Nathan and Claudia Rodin. Joan Nathan is an American. Um, and she at one point was, I think it was the mayor of Tel Aviv's aide. And she just is so steeped in this. And she has a combination of storytelling and, 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 and giving history and background that's just amazing. And each, each recipe just makes you feel like you're in the person's kitchen. And so her books have been very influential on me. And Claudia is, an, a, a, I think her family is, was Syrian Jewish and they lived in Egypt. And then when Egypt forced all the Jews out and 56 maybe or mostly just out in 56 um they ended up in england so she has a ashkenazi sephardic mizrahi perspective and uh, her book the world of jewish food was just was an eye-opener so and then of course in terms of other food writing i would have to say um 
Gil Marx, the late Gil Marx, his, was, he wrote the Encyclopedia of Jewish Food, uh, which is this comprehensive book. It must be three inches thick. Um, a to Z, it's literally the A to Z of Jewish food and Jewish, Jewish food around the world. He was a rabbi, a historian, a caterer, a cookbook author, and it's just an amazing research book. I've also lately been really enjoying reading books from people that either are from um, different cultures, like Central Asian cultures, um, or are, have, have, have become really expert in them. For example, Carolyn Eden for her Red Sands and her other books. Um, I have, uh, um, I, I've also seek out, I'm waiting anxiously for Amazon to deliver my copy of Bene Appetit, which is a discussion of the Jewish foodways and recipes from the five or six different Jewish communities in India. Um, I've really, I've really gone into these deep books. Um, I have a book that was first published in 86, 1986 about the Jewish food, the Greek Jewish food. Um, I found this one about the Jewish food of the Yemen Jew, the food of the Yemen Jews. I've been reading that. I just really like to dig down into these recipes. And I enjoy the recipes that are, you know, family recipes being passed on, but I prefer the books that give some perspective and give some history. Since I don't speak um, uh, Yemeni, I don't speak French, I don't even speak Hebrew, I'm reliant on secondary so so sources for this. So the more in depth that these books go, the happier I am. Now, um, Hanukkah is rapidly approaching. Are you looking forward to preparing something special for this holiday? Well, it starts November 28th, which is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So, um, so um, I'm not really sure what I'll be making. As a food writer, I'm always working in advance. So I've actually already finished all my Hanukkah recipes. I just filed my last story yesterday. I did a, um, a hidden, I reviewed, I did a hidden vegetable waka that has potato and zucchini and cauliflower. Was it? And then I occasionally I do columns based on other people's recipes, but you know, when they're sent to me for a review or whatever, and that's from PJ library. And then the other recipe was this Persian fritter in sugar syrup. And it's very, it, it kind of looks a little bit like a funnel cake. Mm -hmm. And it, it, this is a Persian one, but you'll see it in India. You'll see it in the middle East. You'll see it in North Africa. It's a very popular fried treat. And it just seemed perfect for Hanukkah. And that's from a new book called Persian Delicacies um, by Angela Kohane, who was born in Tehran. Um, so right now I have to say that um, I'm not exactly sure what I'll do. Um, usually when, usually I have to make the first night, I have to make the regular Kramer family lockers, which are in the book um, because everybody wants that. And then I can experiment the other nights. Um, I'm also, Hanukkah is also a time of dairy foods. So I might, I'm, I have this recipe I really love and it's a savory cheesecake. So it's for a first course or a main course. It's not a dessert. It's, it's, so it's, it's layered and twirled and marbleized with balsamic onions. Oh, and, wow. it has a, and it has a latke crust. So oh my probably, God. And that recipe isn't in the book, but I'll probably make that. And then because dairy foods are also um, really popular, I love my little mini mango mini cheesecakes. And it's um, a mango cardamom puree that's rolled through these little tiny cheesecakes you make in a cupcake tin mm. and then top with some mango puree. And it kind of gives everything a little bit of a, a Southeastern test. And um, we didn't, we didn't talk about, we talked about travel in terms of my cooking classes, but just the food I eat while I travel has an impact. And I um, I wouldn't serve it with the mango cheesecakes because we'd be mixing meat with milk, but right. the, car, the, the mango cheesecakes reminded me about the lemongrass um, ginger marinated flanken. Flanken is cross-cut um, short ribs. So that's where each, it's like your Korean barbecue short rib where it's each piece of meat has these thin end, ends of bones running through it. 
as opposed to something that looks like something Fred Frank's Flintstone would have eaten, you know, the yeah. brontosaurus rib cut. And you marinate it in this paste of lemongrass and ginger and other good things. Oh, and then wow. you grill it. And that came from my trip to Cambodia where I was eating skewers of beef with that marinade. I was thinking, how can I, I love this. How can I take these flavors and use it in, in, as a Jewish food? And it came to me that why not do it on the flanken, you know, and, um, and it worked out beautifully. So that's, that's a, a more obvious example than other times about how my travel has impacted on it. And uh, one thing that the book has in going through the introduction to each of the four seasons, is I discuss the Jewish calendar and I discuss some of the symbolism of the food that would be eaten during that time and holidays and give holiday menus and on the Shabbat menu, Shabbat, the 52 primary recipes, I give a whole menu how you could use that in a Shabbat dinner, pulling from other recipes in the book or things that you don't really need a recipe to make, like steamed green beans or something like that. Yeah. Now, what is next for you? Well, every two weeks I have a deadline for my <laughs> yeah. jweekly.com column. So um, right now, Right now, I'm trying to figure out what I'll do next for that. Um, I think I'd like to work a little bit. These are holiday. You know, I like to give a lot of make in advance steps and help people break things down to make the recipes more manageable. But these recipes are like it's a holiday that comes every week and these are celebratory foods. So I think I would like to look at uh, maybe more everyday foods. But I'm still working on it. Just... It's it's interesting when I this is my first cookbook and I pressed send December seventeenth. I thought, oh, that's it, I'm done, and it was so not done with edits and proofing and decisions that needed to be made and and um, and of course with with COVID and supply chain woes, um, the book publication has been pushed back several times. Oh yeah, so, uh, that's yeah. happening to a lot of people. I've been talking to a lot of people experiencing that. Well, the book was in dock down in the LA area. I'm not sure if it was at Long Beach or LA for over three weeks before I got unloaded. So I don't think I'm alone in that situation. Yeah. And, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's 52 Shabbats. Shabbat comes every year. The, there's a holiday cycle every year. And I think that this book keeps giving that way. And I know a, a lot of non-Jews have expressed interest in the book because they feel like the flavors are ones they've gotten th that they're interested in learning more about. Oh yeah, what, absolutely. And if you, and, and I think the book's timely because um, research shows that 72% of all Jews, no matter what their affiliation is, say the biggest thing they do culturally as Jews is eat Jewish food and celebrate Jewish holidays. <laughs> and six out of 10 of all Jews also say, this is according to the Pew Research, also say that they like to share that with non-Jews. And then if you look at the figures on, um, you know, there's no monolith Jewish family. Jewish families come in all shapes and sizes and belief structures and, and, and chosen versus birth family. I mean, it's just, and whether are you, what level of religious are you? Are you an interreligious family? Are you culturally Jewish? I mean, there's no one, one, one size fits all for Jewish families life in, um, in America. And I think that I try to address that in this book, that no matter how you see yourself as a Jew, or even if you don't see yourself as a Jew, that you can learn more about the holiday that comes every week and the other Jewish holidays and, and about the food and the food ways that, um, that celebrate them. Well, you did an amazing job on the cookbook. It's just fabulous. And I want to recommend it to our listeners because it's really wonderful and you're going to want to own it. Um, I'm going to put links to it in the bio. I'm also going to, um, in the bio, put um, a link to your jweekly.com columns because they're wonderful. And I think it's something that the, our listeners should peruse. I want to thank you for being on the program. It's been wonderful talking to you. I've really got, enjoyed getting to talk to you, and I really love your cookbook. I can't go on about that enough. Well, Jean, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, 
um, I'll update you when faithcramer.com goes live. So you can throw that in there too. Yeah. Um, anything well, any, else? Any excuse to have you on here again too? I'd love to have you talk on here again and let's hope you can come back. I would love to come back anytime. That was my conversation with Faith Kramer for Hanukkah week. This is a rebroadcast of a previously aired episode. We have links to her book, 52 Shabbats, um, in the bio. You should definitely check that out. And also, she has a website called Blog Appetit, which we have links to as well. Check that out. Really great recipes. I'll be using some of them for the holidays, especially a brisket recipe I'm very fond of. We have a lot of great uh, stuff all week long. You're going to want to check out some of these other episodes that we have as well. Coming up, we have... Kim Kushner of Modern Table. She'll be up on uh, tomorrow, on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll have Emily Winston, who's the CEO of Boychick Bagels. She'll be on on Friday. Check those out for a wonderful week of Hanukkah broadcasting. If your family celebrates Hanukkah, I wish you a very happy Hanukkah and hope you have a great week.